Hey everybody, our board slash OITE podcast companion book is now available for you to follow along and take notes with our podcast review. Just click the link in the description. This episode is sponsored by the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. Have you heard about the Resident Orthopedic Core Knowledge Program? The American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons has partnered with leading experts in the field to bring you ROCK, the online learning platform developed for U.S. residency programs. Free to residents, ROCK empowers you to build a foundation to prepare you for the OITE and ABOS Part 1 exam. And remember, access to the ROCK content is free for residents. Get started at rock.aaos.org. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Nailed It Ortho podcast featuring myself, Dr. Cole, as well as Dr. Spencer Woolwan. You are tuned into our OITE or our board review series, and we are talking some foot and ankle. If you have not already, go and check out the companion book to this podcast for these OITE slash ABOS review episodes. Uh, those include all the notes that pretty much cover everything that we're talking about now and it has timestamps as well as well as some images that uh that i try to draw by hand so if you hate them please do not be too hard on me <laughs> um but without further ado uh, let's go ahead and hop into today's episode you are now listening to nailed it the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring doctors jay fitz and wendell cole Um, now, what is an avulsion of the, I feel like this is always just a good like pimp question they always used to ask me, um, but what is an avulsion of the anterior inferior tibiofibulo uh, uh, ligament called AITFL? So the, uh, if it's an avulsion from the tibia, it's going to be a chaput uh, fragment. And if it's an avulsion from the fibula, it's going to be a Wagstaff uh, fragment. And and the the Chaput and uh, Volkman's um, uh, fragments are going to be uh, a little bit more common in the pilon uh, arena when because the the tibia kind of routinely fractures into three main. Uh, segments and that's going to be the chaput, the Volkman and the medial fragment. But again, avulsion from the tibia is going to be a chaput. If you are very uh, savvy with trauma, um, you can put a screw through the chaput fracture or the chaput tubercle and fix the AITFL that way. Um, and then the avulsion from the fibula once again is the wax staff. And what is the common uh, laceration pattern with an open bimal ankle fracture. And this is so true. It's going to have that big transverse laceration. Like, you know, you see this in the ED, you see that transverse laceration, you see exposed bone, there's an open, you know, ankle fracture dislocation. That is like the classic bimal open ankle fracture. It's going to have that transverse uh, laceration right over the medial mal malleolus. And, you know, if you think about it, the Obviously, our, our dislocations are going to be based on the distal bone. So if our talus is moving laterally and that, that medial mal kind of really popping right out through the skin, it's going to be that, that characteristic transverse lacerations. And I swear the worst ones I've seen have all been like this older woman that to, to somehow like stand up from, uh, I've, I had a really bad one in this older lady that was pretty obese and she just was just standing up from the toilet and somehow sustained this like 
really bad open by mouth <laughs> ankle <laughs> the ankle fracture dislocation you know uh with this just again classical transverse laceration um now you mentioned these a little bit earlier but what ankle fractures can be treated non-operatively uh, the ones that are stable. So you you see the isolated lateral mal, you stressed it, and the there was no medial clear space widening. Um, they can be treated non-operatively. Usually, a medial malleolar avulsion fracture uh, is going to be treated uh, non-operatively, as well as a low transverse medial mal fracture. And the reason for the low the why it's, it should be a low transverse medial mal fracture is you still get that uh, that medial shoulder uh, of the distal tibia helping contain the talus. And so it acts like a medial mal avulsion fracture, even though it's a transverse medial mal fracture. And those can be casted for about four to six weeks or placed into a cam boot. And then um, also select unstable fractures in very poor surgical candidates where actually taking them to surgery is worse than them having a broken ankle, um, you, it is very, very unlikely that they will test you on a patient like that. They, uh, that is not a very high yield concept testing wise, but it does come up in real practice. I mean, if you have a 92 year old demented patient who has cardiomyopathy, pneumonia and something else, and they fell and broke their ankle, well, it might be better for them to just be in a cast, even though they have an unstable bimal. So you have to kind of weigh the risks and benefits for, for certain patients, but um, it's unlikely that you'll be tested on a patient like that uh, uh, in the OIT or ABOS. And so what are, we keep talking about what's stable and what's unstable. What's really an unstable ankle fracture? Yeah, so unstable ankle fractures are any ankle fractures that have lateral talus displacement. And I, I should have brought uh, put the article on here, but you know, there's that classic article that shows you just like one or two millimeters of displacement of the talus increases those contact pressure areas in the uh, in the ankle joint by an astronomical number. I think it was somewhere around forty two percent or so, it may be more. Um, but it's that, that, that kind of classic paper. <laughs> I should have put the paper on here. Uh, but any fracture that you have lateral talus displacement is unstable. So this is going to be your bimalleolar fractures as well as your bimalleolar equivalent fractures, which you uh, explained earlier. Uh, and just to repeat, that's when you have a fracture of the lateral malleolus. And then you have a, a, a ligamentous injury on the medial side. So you may have a deltoid ligament disruption where you got a gravity stress view and you saw widening of that medial clear space. Um, this is also going to be our trimalleolar ankle fractures or a trimalleolar equivalent. Uh, and any fracture really where you have tibio-talar incongruity is present. So, you know, you just want to look at all those things that you were talking a little bit about earlier, Spencer, uh, when you're when you're discussing assessing the ankle films. And you just want to look at all your angles, look at all your spaces, make sure everything is congruent. And when things aren't congruent, you should kind of raise a little red flag. Um, now, so we talked about which ones could be treated non-operatively and which ones are unstable. Now, what are some, I guess, considerations when you're talking about fixing, um, you know, lateral malleolus fractures? What are some things you can do, which, how you can treat them? Yeah, so when you're, when you're looking at ankle fractures, um, most of the time the fibula is fixed first. 
And that's really to just help restore length and ankle stability, even if there is a medial malleolus fracture. Um, the, the problem with fixing the medial malleolus first is uh, that you, it's, it's easy to malreduce it, but have it still look fairly decent on uh, the fluoroscopy images. And so if you actually fix the medial malleolus with the talus translated laterally, just like what you said, if there's lateral talus displacement, it increases these contact forces and increases their risk for uh, post-traumatic arthritis. Um, and it also makes it very difficult to reduce the fibula if the talus is constantly pushing on it. So fix the fibula first, you restore length and ankle stability, and then you move over to the medial side. Typically, these lateral malleolus uh, fractures are fixed with one-third tubular plates or distal fibula locking plates, depending on bone quality and fracture uh, appearance. You can also use mini-frag uh, plates as well in a 90-90 fashion or in conjunction with uh, one-third tubular or distal fibula locking plate to help secure in the, uh, or help key in the, the fracture. Typically, you use, use these plates in a bridge construct for comminuted ankle fractures. And then uh, the, for a lot of these fractures, the, um, the spike for the spiral type fracture is posterior. And so you can use a posterior anti-glide plate for the oblique and spiral type fractures and have the, when you're looking at an AP view, the plate is actually sitting on the posterior surface of the fibula. You can lag through a plate with that. Um, the problem is that with the plate facing posterior, that's where the peroneal tendons are traversing in that area as well. And so they tend to get some peroneal tendon irritation and more commonly these sort of plates are removed, um, but not always, but it, it, you do just run that risk of having a peroneus tendon uh, injury or irritation. And so what are some of the fixation considerations for a medial malfracture? Yeah, so you could fix these uh, medial malfractures. You could fix them with some partially threaded screws for more transverse or some oblique fractures. Um, for those vertical shear patterns, like that supination adduction type that you mentioned a little bit earlier, you could, those need to be buttress plated or, you know, use a, a plate in an anti-glide fashion, as some may call it as well. And then there are, there are many variety. There are also hook plates that you can uh, use or a plate where you can actually make your own hook plate where you can curve the tongs to kind of capture that medial mouth fragment and then, uh, and then put some screws uh, up into, uh, up through the medial mal, and then also some screws on the plate on the side as well. And, you know, there's tension band. There, there are a lot of different techniques for medial mal fractures, but um, just kind of treat whatever the fracture, uh, whatever the fracture is, you know, simple fractures, again, go back to, to basic simple fractures like to be compressed uh, and, and uh, commutative fractures uh, may need to be bridged depending on, you know, exactly what it is. And, so you touched a little bit about lateral mal. We talked about, you know, one-third semi-tubular or using, you know, putting a plate posteriorly, but they can also have some perennial 
um, uh, tendon injuries. We talked about the medial mal using kind of these partially threaded screws for these transverse or oblique fractures or buttress plating or hook plates. This episode is sponsored by the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. If you're an orthopedic resident, it's time to start building the foundation to be prepared for the OITE and ABOS Part 1 exam. The American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons has partnered with leaders in the field to bring you the Resident Orthopedic Core Knowledge Program. Rock is an all-in-one online learning platform covering 11 subspecialties. You can access the content for free at rock.aaos.org. This platform delivers a comprehensive, structured, standardized curriculum and even includes self-assessment quizzes and performance analytics. And remember, residents never pay to access rock content. Get started today at rock.aaos.org. What about the posterior malleolus? What are some um, things that you may consider uh, when you when you are looking at fixing a posterior malleolus fracture? Yeah. So the the posterior mal is always, and this is always going to come up in fracture conference when you're. Uh, dead tired, you've been away for the last 26 hours and you're in a room full of trauma attendings and you finally put up the ankle fracture and it's it looks like a bimal on the AP and then you see a little bit of a posterior malleolus fracture on the lateral and they're all going to say, oh, when do you want to fix it? And uh, the most commonly uh, kind of cited uh, reason to fix these is if there is greater than about 20 to 25% articular surface involvement and is associated with instability. Then you are going to go after that posterior malleolus itself and fix it rather than uh, doing like syndesmotic screws to uh, fix the syndesmosis. And then uh, you just assume that the posterior malleolus or the Volkman fracture fragment is going to heal on its own. Um, you can do percutaneous fixation if the fragment is large enough, uh, where that's usually through uh, a small anterior incision and you're doing anterior to posterior, uh, either lag by design or lag by technique sort of screws. Usually uh, these are cannulated because you want to get uh, proper placement using K wires, then you get your images, make sure you're out of the syndesmosis and make sure you're choosing screws that are of the correct length. And then you seat the screws down over the uh, K wires. But then uh, there's uh, also the approach of using like a posterior lateral approach. If they have a lateral malleolus fracture too, which most of them will, you can fix the lateral malleolus and the posterior, posterior malleolus through the same approach. Um, but if the fracture is not uh, best treated posterior lateral, you can go posterior medial. People tend to avoid it just because of the neurovascular structures that pass by the ankle in that area. But again, if you know the anatomy, you know how to avoid them and you know how to safely protect them, then it, a posterior medial approach is actually a very good approach to the ankle for posterior malleolus fixation. And so what are some of the fixation considerations for like us for the syndesmosis? Yeah. And again, just to recap, you know, say you've done all your fixation, you fix a posterior mal, you fix uh, the lateral mal, and then you stressed it and there was still an increase in 
uh, in that kind of tib fib space, and you're like, all right, well, let's go ahead and fix the syndesmosis. And you know, you get your ankle up in dorsiflexion because you mentioned a little bit earlier um, how about when we're dorsiflex uh, our 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 ankle, how that kind of causes a little bit of external rotation for our fibula. And so we're saying, okay, we're going to fix our syndesmosis. And there are many different ways that you can actually fix uh, syndesmotic injuries. You can do one or two, 3.5 or 4.5 millimeter um, cortical screw fixations. And another thing that comes up is how many cortices of fixation do you want? Um, there are studies that show no differences between three or four cortices of fixation. Um, so that's something to note. Uh, when you're kind of uh, deciding of, of how much fixation you want. I know our trauma guys will say more fixation, the better. Um, so they'll go four cortices. Okay. Uh, and one thing that you do need to note, though, is when you're fixing the syndesmosis, and again, um, you need to let the patients know that, hey, these screws may break with weight bearing, and that's okay. You know, like, you know, you just need to let them know beforehand. That way they're not three or four months down the line, and their screws break, and they think that something's wrong, or, you know, you get an x-ray. You know, you need to just counsel them and say the screws may break with weight bearing. Um, that is normal for, for this or that's not uncommon. And you can also fix these with a suture button um, in contrast to screw and plate fixation. So there are also suture buttons you can do from different companies. The one thing to note about that is it is associated with an increased price but it is also associated with a decreased reoperation rate. Um, so again, that's kind of just some suture buttons to fix the syndesmosis. And you can also do it with screws, 3.5 or 4.5 uh, screws on the little plate. Um, now, is there a common agreement on, <laughs> on when to remove syndesmotic screws? No, there's not. You can ask 10 different surgeons. You'll get 10 different answers on if yes or if no or when to do it or why to do it. Um, we did not do it very commonly in my residency. It would only be done if uh, the patients wanted them taken out because uh, they just they felt like their ankle was stiff uh, after their initial surgery, they went back to their job, they went back to sports, they went back to this or that, and they just, they felt like their ankle was too stiff. And if that screw was still intact, then you can maybe argue that as they dorsiflex and the talus wants to push the fibula into a slight bit of external rotation normally, that a screw holding that in place can cause that ankle to feel tight. And so we would take it out then. Um, but uh, you need to leave them for at least three months uh, to allow for the soft tissues to heal because the syndesmosis is, unless you fix the chaput or you fix the Volkman fragments for bone to bone contact, they, it's a truly soft tissue injury and you need three months for that to happen. Um, is syndesmosis malreduction rare when treating syndesmosis <laughs> injuries? No, I think you wrote these questions just to like, I, I couldn't figure out a way to say this without saying like, hey, is it very rare to have a malreduction? And no, it's actually, it's, it's not very rare. Um, Iatrogenic malreduction can be uh, as high as up to 50%. Uh, percent. Uh, and, and, you know, you'll, you'll notice this, you know, the fibula will be unstable with A to P translation 
uh, when you, you know, you get this kind of syndesmotic malreduction, but syndesmosis malreduction is, uh, is not very rare. And I still don't know if there's a correct like consensus on how to reduce the syndesmosis when you're fixing it, you know, like, do you clamp it? Do you go and you do an open reduction and you dissect it, dissect uh, a little bit more anteriorly with the, uh, with uh, you dissect more anteriorly along the fibula aspect to see if you can see the ligaments and directly reduce it versus do you just have the foot and dorsiflexion and clamp it? I don't know if there is a consensus along the foot and ankle world on uh, the best way to reduce these, uh, but I don't know if there is a best way as of right now as how high these uh, these malreduction rates can be. Yeah, I know, and I I did not do my training at Harborview, and I'm also not a trauma specialist, um, but I do believe that there are a few trauma attendings up at Harborview that are not shy about getting a OR in the uh, uh, in the OR to look at like a, a CT scan of the ankle in in terms of where they clamp that reduction to make sure that the syndesmosis is reduced. It seems like, and you ask a lot of trauma attendees that are not up there, they'll say that that is a little overkill, but if it gets the reduction right, then you did right by the patient. I also think that that's a, one of the main reasons why a lot more people are starting to transition over to the suture button. Because if yeah. you think about it, a, a screw will hold the fibula where you put it. But a suture button, there's always going to be a little bit of laxity in it, even if you cinch it down as tight as you possibly can. And the fibula tends to kind of find its home where it's supposed to be in the syndesmosis. Um, so I, I think that there's probably going to be, I don't know if there's any studies that show this, but I, I would imagine that malreduction rates using suture buttons versus screws, that the suture button will actually have a lower malreduction rate just because it's it has a little bit more freedom in the fibula translation. But again, um, like you said, malreduction rates are high and you need to be very, very diligent in uh, reducing these syndesmosis injuries because it, it is not just a simple, oh, looks good. Let's just put a screw across it. Like you really have to get the fibula keyed in right before you do it. Yeah. And I've, I've heard some foot and ankle docs say, you know, like on the contrary, like why are we putting screws across joints? You know, so yeah, uh, you know, I, I don't know what the consensus is. Um, I, I hope there's some young uh, researchers out there doing their thing and and finding some of these uh, answers out for us. Thank you all for listening to yet another episode of the Nailed It Ortho podcast. We hope that you enjoyed it and we hope that you all are following along with the companion book that we have out on Amazon. It is an ebook, so enjoy it and please hit the subscribe button. And until next time, we will see you soon.